Lesson 9 for August 25 to 31, ready for teaching on September 1, the Second Missionary Journey. Sabbath afternoon, August 25. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, in this amazing story that we read in the book of Acts, we see your grace, your love, your power, and also your direction for us. And as we open your word this week, we pray that our memory text will come to life, that we will keep on speaking for you and we won't be silent. Bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text is Acts 18 verses 9 and 10. Do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. Let's read that again, Acts 18, verses 9 and 10. Do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. Back in Antioch, Paul and Barnabas nurtured the church and engaged in further evangelistic work. This was seemingly the last time they worked together as a sharp disagreement led to their separation. The reason for Paul and Barnabas' disagreement was Mark, Barnabas's cousin, who we read about in Colossians 4.10. When Paul invited Barnabas to return to the places they had evangelized in their previous journey, Barnabas wanted to take his cousin along, but Paul was against it because of Mark's past failure, recorded in Acts 13.13. Paul and Barnabas's separation, however, was turned into a blessing, because in dividing their efforts they could cover a wider area than they had first planned. Barnabas took Mark and returned to Cyprus, Barnabas's homeland, while Having invited Silas to join him, Paul went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches there. Before coming to Antioch the first time, Paul had spent several years in Tarsus. Now he had the opportunity to revisit the congregations he had established there. Nevertheless, God's plan for him was much greater than Paul first conceived. Sunday, August 26, back in Lystra. Luke's selective choice of events brings Paul almost straight to Derby and Lystra. About Syria and Cilicia, the only things he says is that Paul went through those regions confirming the churches, as it says in Acts 15.41. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Question. Read Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through to 13. What does Paul's actions here teach us about how sensitive he was in seeking to reach others? Acts 16, beginning at verse 1. Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. 
As they travelled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Paul and his companions travelled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, he got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Samothrace, and the next day we went to Neapolis. From there we travelled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. Though Timothy's father was a Gentile, his mother was a Jewish Christian. Her name was Eunice. Despite being uncircumcised, Timothy knew the scriptures from childhood, as we read in Second Timothy 3, verse 15, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. This implies he was also a pious person. As a Christian, he already had earned the respect and the admiration of all the local believers. Because Jewish identity was passed on through the mother's line rather than the father's, Timothy was a Jew. He had not been circumcised on the eighth day after birth, perhaps because his father, a Greek, viewed circumcision as barbaric. Wishing to have Timothy as a co-worker and knowing that as an uncircumcised Jew he would be forbidden to enter the Jewish synagogues under the charge of apostasy, Paul had him circumcised. Paul's motivation for doing so, therefore, was entirely practical and should not be seen as a contradiction to the gospel he preached. After revisiting the places that he had been in his first journey, Paul decided to go southwest, possibly to Ephesus in the province of Asia, but the Holy Spirit prevented him from doing so. He then moved north, trying to go to Bithynia, but again in some undisclosed way, the Spirit prevented him from going there. Because he already was passing through Mysia, Paul's only option was to go westward to the seaport of Troas, from where he could sail in a number of directions. In a night vision, however, God showed him he should sail across the Aegean Sea to Macedonia. When his companions learned about the vision, they concluded that God had indeed called them to share the gospel with the Macedonians. So to finish today, think about why Paul circumcised Timothy. What should this teach us about being willing to do certain things that we might not always agree with or deem necessary, but that will serve a greater cause?
Monday, August 27, Philippi. Once in Macedonia, Paul and his companions travelled to Philippi, where they established the first Christian congregation in Europe. Question, read Acts 16, verses 11 to 24. Where did the missionaries go on Sabbath, and why? What ultimately happened to them there? Acts 16, verses 11 to 24. From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight to Samothrace, and the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there we travelled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptised, she invited us to her home. "'If you consider me a believer in the Lord,' she said, "'come and stay at my house.' And she persuaded us. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, "'These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved!' She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, "'In the name of Jesus Christ I command you to come out of her.' At that moment the spirit left her. When her owners realised that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, "'These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us as Romans to accept or practice.' The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Whenever Paul arrived in a city, his practice was to visit the local synagogue on Sabbath in order to witness to the Jews. And we've read about that in Acts 13, verse 14. From Perga they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath they entered the synagogue and sat down. And in Acts 13, 42 and 44, we read, As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And Acts 17, verses 1 and 2. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue on three Sabbath days. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures. And Acts 18, verse 4. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. That in Philippi he and his group went to a riverside to pray, together with some women, both Jewish and Gentile worshippers of God, 
probably means there was no synagogue in the city. The significance of this is that Paul did not go to Jewish synagogues on Sabbaths only for evangelistic purposes, but also because this was his day of worship. Question. Read Act 16, verses 25 to 30. Review the story of the jailer's conversion. What did he need to do to be saved? Act 16, beginning at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, "'Don't harm yourself, we are all here.' The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, "'Sirs, what must I do to be saved?' They replied, "'Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household.' Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house." At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Paul and Silas's answer to the jailer's question is in full harmony with the gospel. Since salvation is entirely through faith in Jesus Christ, as we read in Romans 3.28, For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And also in Galatians 2.16, I know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. What we cannot conclude from the episode, however, is that belief in Jesus is all that is necessary for baptism, at the expense of the proper doctrinal and practical instruction. What do we know about the jailer? Was he a Jew or a Jewish proselyte? In either case, what he needed was to believe in Jesus as Lord and Saviour. What if he were a Gentile who already knew and worshipped God, such as Cornelius or Lydia, who we read about in Acts 16.14, and several others in Acts? What if he previously had attended Paul's evangelistic meetings in the city? Whatever the facts about him, the brevity of the account should not be used as an excuse for quick baptisms. And so to finish today, Acts 16 verses 31 to 34. Let's read that. Acts 16 beginning at verse 31. They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. What does this teach us about just how complete and full Christ's sacrifice was for us? 
How can you learn, day by day, to rest in the assurance of Christ's righteousness covering you as your only hope of salvation? Tuesday, August 28, Thessalonica and Berea When Paul and Silas were released from prison, the missionaries departed from Philippi. We read that in Acts 16, verses 35 to 40. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, Release those men. The jailer told Paul, The magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, They beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now, do you want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. From Philippi, Paul and his companions went straight to Thessalonica, the capital city of Macedonia. Question. Read Act 17, 1-9. How did the Thessalonian Jews react to Paul's successful preaching among the Gentiles? Acts 17, beginning at verse 1. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. "'This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah,' he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women.' But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, saying, These men, who have caused trouble all over the world, have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. Once again, we see Paul looking for the synagogue where he could share the gospel. Many devout Greeks and not a few prominent women were persuaded by Paul's message. That these converts joined Paul and Silas, as it said in verse 4, seems to mean they formed a separate group and met apart from the synagogue, probably in Jason's house. Moved with jealousy, their opponents started a riot. 
Their intention was to bring Paul and Silas, Timothy is not mentioned, before the city's assembly and accuse them. As they could not find the missionaries, Jason himself and a few other new believers were dragged to the local authorities under the charge of sheltering political agitators. Question. Read Act 17, verses 10 through to 15. What was the response of the Berean Jews in comparison to that in Thessalonica? Act 17, beginning at verse 10. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. The term Eugenies, used in Acts 17 verse 11, originally meant well-born or of noble birth but came to denote more generally a fair-minded attitude, which is likely the case here. The Jews from Berea are praised not simply because they agreed with Paul and Silas, but because of their willingness to examine the Scriptures by themselves and on a daily basis to see if what the missionaries were saying was correct. A merely emotional response to the gospel, without the necessary intellectual conviction, tends to be superficial and short-lived. Before long, however, persecution interrupted Paul's productive ministry in Berea, compelling him to move farther south to Athens. And so to finish today, when was the last time you diligently searched the scriptures in order to find out whether these things, whatever they were, were so. Wednesday, August 29, Paul in Athens. Athens, the intellectual centre of ancient Greece, literally was given to idols. Marble statues of gods and persons were found everywhere, especially at the entrance of the Agora, the public square, which was the hub of urban life. Paul was so distressed about such dominant idolatry that he changed his usual practice of going first to the synagogue and pursued a dual course of action. He disputed weekly in the synagogue with Jews and devout Gentiles and daily in the public square with the Greeks, as we read in Acts 17, 15-22. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. When Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. 
a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. As the Athenians were always ready to hear something new, some philosophers took interest in Paul's teaching and invited him to address the Areopagus, the high council of the city. In his speech, Paul did not quote from the scriptures or recap the history of God's dealing with Israel as he did when speaking to a Jewish audience. Uh, actually, in Acts thirteen sixteen to 41, that's what he does. Let's read that. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about forty years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness, and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about four hundred and fifty years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled forty years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Saviour Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I am not the one you are looking for, but there is one coming after me, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had travelled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, to a day I have become your father. God raised him from the dead, so that he will never be subject to decay, as God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessing promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, You will not let your Holy One see decay. 
Now, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors, and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. This approach would not make much sense with this audience. Instead, he presented some important biblical truths in a way that cultured pagans could understand. Question. Read Acts 17, verses 22 to 31. In his Areopagus speech, what great truths about God and salvation and history and humanity did he preach to these people. Acts 17, beginning at verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and that is what I am about to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Most of Paul's words were ridiculous to that sophisticated pagan audience, whose concepts about God and religion were distorted greatly. We do not know how Paul intended to end his message, for he seems to have been interrupted the very moment he referred to God's judgment of the world. This belief collided head-on with two Greek concepts. One, that God is utterly transcendent, having no dealings whatsoever with the world or concerns in human affairs. And two, that when a person dies, there can be no resurrection at all. This helps to explain why the gospel was foolishness to the Greeks, as we've read at other times in 1 Corinthians one twenty-three, and the number of converts in Athens was small. Yet, among those who came to believe was some of the most influential people in Athenian society, 
such as Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and Damaris, whose mention by name implies she was of some status, if not also a member of the council herself, as we read in verse 34. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. And so to finish today, Paul's different approach before the Areopagus shows his awareness of social and cultural differences. He even quoted a pagan poet in verse 28. Did you notice that? For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. In order to make his point. What should this teach us about how we can use different methods to reach different people? Thursday, August 30, Paul in Corinth. Acts chapter 18, verses 1 to 11, which we'll read a little later, recounts Paul's experience in Corinth, where he would stay for one and a half years. Aquila and Priscilla would become Paul's lifelong friends, as we read in Romans 16.3 and 2 Timothy 4.19. The account implies they were already Christians when they came to Corinth, probably because of the deportation of Jews from Rome by the Emperor Claudius. Roman historian Suetonius seems to indicate that the deportation occurred due to disturbances in the Jewish community associated with the name of Christ, which would perhaps be the result of the preaching of the gospel by local Jewish believers. Thus, it is possible that Aquila and Priscilla themselves had been involved in such activities. In any case, besides sharing the same faith and the same Jewish background, Paul and his new friends also shared the same trade. Question. Read Acts 18, verses 4 to 17. What was the result of Paul's missionary activities in Corinth? Let's read Acts chapter 18, and we'll start at verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent-maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not 
be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them about the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul in Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd were turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul, and Gallio showed no concern, whatever. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, they brought some financial support from the churches there, as is recorded in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 8 and 9. I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you, and when I was with you and needing something, I was not a burden to anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way, and will continue to do so. And this allowed Paul to devote himself entirely to preaching. Paul's policy was to live at his own expense during his ministry, though he also taught that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 14. Despite the strong Jewish opposition to Paul's message, some Jews did believe, as well as some Gentile worshippers of God. Among the converts were Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household. Many Corinthians also believed and were baptised. The situation among the Jews, however, was rather tense, as the following episode demonstrates in Acts 18, verses 12 to 17, and we just read that. And Paul possibly was planning to leave Corinth soon, but in a night vision he received divine encouragement to stay on. And we've read that as well. On his way back to Antioch, Paul took Aquila and Priscilla with him and left them in Ephesus, where he spent a few days before resuming his trip. While there, he had the opportunity to preach in the local Jewish synagogue, whose positive response made him promise that, God willing, he would come back. And we read that in Acts 18, verses 18 to 21. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Shentere because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. This happened right in his next journey. So to finish the day, Paul, frustrated by his reception, needed encouragement from the Lord in regard to the salvation of souls in Corinth. 
What do the Lord's words to him in Acts 18.10 say to us when we might feel something similar to what Paul felt? Acts 18 verse 10 For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. Friday, August 31. From the book The Acts of the Apostles, page 230, we read, Those who today preach unpopular truths need not be discouraged if at times they meet with no more favourable reception, even from those who claim to be Christians, than did Paul and his fellow workers from the people among whom they laboured. The messengers of the cross must arm themselves with watchfulness and prayer, and move forward with faith and courage, working always in the name of Jesus. End of quote. And from the same book, page 232, If in the closing scenes of this earth's history, those to whom testing truths are proclaimed would follow the example of the Bereans, searching the scriptures daily and comparing with God's word the messages brought them, they would today be a large number loyal to the precepts of God's law, when now there are comparatively few. All will be judged according to the light that has been given. The Lord sends forth his ambassadors with a message of salvation, and those who hear he will hold responsible for the way in which they treat the words of his servants. Those who are sincerely seeking for truth will make a careful investigation in the light of God's word of the doctrines presented to them. And that brings us to our three discussion, no sorry, four discussion questions for this week. One, in the context of the last paragraph of Monday's study, discuss in class the implication of the following statement from Testimonies for the Church, Volume 6, pages 91 and 92. There is need of a more thorough preparation on the part of candidates for baptism. The principles of the Christian life should be made plain to those who have newly come to the truth. Two, dwell more on Wednesday's final question. How can we as a church show the same understanding Paul had of cultural differences and the same willingness to meet the people where they are without compromising the gospel or our own religious identity? 3. Read Acts 17 verses 32 to 34. What can we learn from the three responses that met Paul's message in Athens? Some mocked. They were amused by the passionate earnestness of this strange Jew. It is possible to make a jest of life, but those who do so will find that what began as comedy must end in tragedy. Some put off their decision. The most dangerous of all days is when a man discovers how easy it is to talk about tomorrow. Some believed the wise man knows that only the fool will reject God's offer, wrote William Barclay from his book, The Acts of the Apostles, page 133. Acts 17, verses 32 to 34, reads, When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. 
Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. And question four. Paul actually quoted a pagan writer in Acts 17.28, which we read before twice, in order to make his point with the Athenians. What should that tell us about how at times, using sources like this, could be of value? What dangers are there as well? Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled Not Rich, Not Poor and it's by Andrew McChesney from Adventist Mission. Chang dreamed of money and wealth in China. He thought his backpack-producing factory would make him rich, so he felt perplexed when the business fell on hard times. An online friend offered some unusual advice. Go to church. Chang was too busy for church until after his factory went bankrupt, but he was not impressed with what he saw on his first visit. Then someone told him that if he went to church, God would bless him. I wanted God to bless me with more money, so I went back a second time, he said. Around that time, Chang was hired to work as a restaurant cook in another city. Upon his arrival, he immediately began to look online for a church. I wanted to find a church so I could earn more money, he said. He found the addresses of two churches, a large Sunday church and a small Seventh-day Adventist house church. I don't know why, but I decided to go to the small church, he said. One day, a church member spoke with Chang about the Sabbath. If you keep the Sabbath, you will get more blessings, he said. Chang wanted more money, so he asked the church to pray for him to keep the Sabbath. The next day he told his manager that he wanted Sabbath off or he'd quit. Don't quit, the manager said. Keep your Sabbath. When the restaurant owner heard about the arrangements, he angrily ordered Chang to work on Sabbath. Chang promptly quit. Remarkably, all the restaurant's employees also quit in a show of solidarity. Almost immediately, church members proposed that Chang take health courses at an Adventist sanatorium. Chang liked the idea. With a nutritionist certificate, he could land a high-paying job. But he also had a growing desire to know God. He prayed for Bible training. The next day, two people from different churches called him separately to recommend that he attend an upcoming Bible training in another centre. The training changed his heart. He lost his desire for money and became a Bible worker. Chang, aged 34, says his life can be summed up by Isaiah 55, verse 8, which says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. I don't feel rich now, but I don't feel poor either, he said. A preacher once told me that she lacks nothing. I said, Really? You have so much money that you lack nothing? Now I can understand what she meant. I lack nothing. Your reader for this week's Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide has been Dr. Percy Harold. It has been produced in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind, 
Distributed under the auspices of the Sabbath School Department by HopeChannel.com.